0: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I'm joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going?
1: It's been so long, David. I've missed you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's been three minutes since we last tried to record and it didn't work.
1: Third time's a charm, but I feel God, this is okay. This is just like the episode in the office where Pam won't let won't let um, Michael talk on the first time you know she always oh does yeah she two tries before she trans because the first two are always bad i kept thinking of that during our first just awful awkward talking about the weather intro so this one's <laughs> gonna be good this one's gonna be so good boom boom i'm, I'm ready I'm,
0: I'm gonna count on it tim how are you <laughs> i'm great david how
2: <laughs> david how are you <laughs> I feel like you do such a good job of asking us how we're doing, and sometimes Tim, three... I neglect to turn the question around. You know,
1: Tim had three times to practice that line, and it just, I'm not feeling it.
2: You're not, you not—you don't
0: believe it?
1: Not feeling it. Hi, David, I'm fine. Like, uh, uh, can we workshop that line? Because I'm just not feeling it. There's
0: a lot of different ways one could, could offer that line out to another <laughs> one. But... The
1: whole, like, good day, good day, sir? Is it a good day? Are you wishing me good day? <laughs>
0: Tim, to answer your question, I'm doing well. I'm feeling much better. Finally, uh, I have I, I had that whatever that was that flu-like thing for a while there, and it has since it lasted sailed, a couple of weeks off. for you. Yeah, it, well, the flu turned into the sinus infection, which is what was, yeah, which is what got rough. So the antibiotics. Uh, thankfully, it is 2018, and we have antibiotics to heal our various maladies now. So, I love uh, maladies. It's like a <laughs> maladie is what a it's wonderful a, it's a word.
1: Tribe that roams America, spreading diseases. <laughs> yes. America I was it's like
2: it's it's flu in a in the form of a rock spike. <laughs> <laughs> like you spiders. can see the lag how my
1: imaginations are. Like im, imi- I'm automatically imagining a wandering tribe of disease just showing up to your town like barbarian hordes, and like, oh no, <laughs> the maladies have come, and everyone's <laughs> sick. That's where my mind went.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, there is the the wall made of a- antibiotic. Which, um, <laughs> Can scare them away. Uh, wow, can, this can show just of,
1: keeps going downhill today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is it? Is it going downhill? It feels like it's just on par with most. So we are here to talk about to talk about Howard end by E.M. Forster. We're here to talk about chapters six through ten, and there is a lot we could talk about. There is I, Angelina sent me an interesting text. I mean, well, I guess all of us on our Facebook on the close rads Facebook message little thread that we have our private thread. And Angelina, you said that the shine may have been wearing off a little bit.
1: <laughs> wow, you're gonna quote my personal text now. I don't. Show. Hey, self.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would. I would definitely <laughs> make sure that you understand that anything you say in that thread, I'm gonna. I am gonna use my judgment. Will <laughs> be used against to, you. I'm gonna
1: have to start putting, uh, you know, OFR off the record, off the yeah, record.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes,
1: I may have texted you that I thought the shine was wearing off. Yes, I may and, have.
0: I want to talk about that. Um, Tim, where is the shine for you on Howard's End?
1: I, I knew it was going to be reverse. I knew it. Go ahead. Say it. Say it.
0: Well, maybe I could just say,
2: maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I could tell you what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, um, all right. I thought in the first three chapters, I was like, I'm kind of... I'm bogging down here. Like the shine is kind of coming off. But I thought in nine and 10, I I felt like I had a sense of what Forrester, where we're going in the book. And I felt like in, you know, the first three chapters of this reading, six, seven, and eight, I was getting a little bit lost. I just didn't know. I didn't know where we were going, but I feel like I, I kind of want to try out. I want to make a proposal for what I think this book is let me give a little caveat to say I'm making a point in close reads to not do, I don't do any sort of research about the authors. I mean, sometimes when we've already read books, you know, like Flannery O'Connor, I'd read a lot of Flannery O'Connor before, but I, I don't do any research. So I think it benefits the show if I come in relatively naive. So this is a very naive proposal, but it struck me that this book might be, it seems like it's, it's talking, at least in part, about what we might today call like red states, blue states, a conflict between red states and blue states. Hmm. I recognize that's not what is happening in England in the early part of the 20th century. But, but it now, might be
0: analogous. An, analogous, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, so the question that I have now is, well, the last two chapters of our reading this week are about um, this kind of unspoken conflict between Margaret and Mrs. Wilcox. And it was really hard for me to pick up on exactly what was going on for, between the two of them, because so many of the references that he makes that, that Forrester makes are very indigenous to England, like Like, Herods. I didn't really, I mean, I kind of know a little bit about Herods as a shopping center but i don't know enough to know is this a culturally significant in any way or is this just a place that you go and get stuff
1: mm-hmm. it's, yeah, a de- yeah. it's a department store so
0: okay before we dive too much into 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 this i got a request via email this week from a listener that we summarize the section's for the linear thinkers among us mm, mm. was the was to to do a direct quote, so Tim, if you would um you have you have evolved into our resident summarizer so right. if you what could you sort of summarize quickly in a minute or so? Uh, what happened in these in chapters six through 10 and then we can kind of dive into some of the questions that you're raising which are definitely at the core of the book as well as some of angelina's questions or at least comments about the shine possibly wearing off right and and some of my responses to that
2: chapter six is about leonard bast who's the young man that the girls margaret and um oh my gosh, what's wrong with Hel- me? Helen, 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 sorry, met at the concert. And he comes over for tea in chapters maybe four or five. It doesn't go particularly well. He's there to retrieve his uh, umbrella. doesn't go particularly well. He dashes off. And in six, we see him back at his own flat in a poor part of London. And we find out that he is maybe betrothed or at least involved with a woman who's slightly older with him than him, who also seems to be, um, well, she's lower class. Is that the way that I'm supposed to say it? She's lower class. And there seems like there's some sort of promise that's been made between the two of them and she's (coughs) eager to hold him to it. Seven. We are back with the sisters and There's kind of a conversation, and then we kind of move into the. We learned that the Wilcoxes, who we met in chapters one and two, are moving to London. Oh my goodness, they're moving very near us in London. And so there's a long kind of worry about what's going to happen between Helen and uh, the son, the Wilcox son. And then uh, Margaret does her part to kind of engage Mrs. Wilcox, to invite her out. There's a party that Margaret uh, hosts for Mrs. Wilcox. It goes very, very awkwardly. Mrs. Wilcox is kind of, um, I think it's meant to portray, like, this is an awkward, an awkward party in which a country bumpkin has been invited to the elite with their pinkies in the air, Londoners. Um, mm-hmm. And she just doesn't really know how to discuss the things that these Londoners discuss. She, she just kind of fumbles around. And then Margaret takes her shopping the next day. And we discover obliquely that Mrs. Wilcox, really her, her life is bound up in Howard's End. And Howard's End is now, which is out in the country, Howard's End is now potentially going to be bulldoze to make flats and this is devastating to mrs wilcox and margaret kind of doesn't really pick up on that until a little bit later and then we end chapter 10 and it seems like there's this possibility that margaret and mrs wilcox might be going to howard's Inn, and especially there's this promise that margaret seems to be understanding mrs wilcox in a way she's not looking down on her as a country bumpkin as much anymore she seems like she recognized that Mrs. Wilcox has invested her life in this family and in this home, Howard's End, and that's where we conclude ten. Anything that I left out, you guys?
0: Um, I don't think, I don't think so. So, uh, Angelina, one of the things that you mentioned that you mentioned is. That you didn't love Mrs. Wilcox, and I was kind of following, tracking a little bit of the conversation on the Facebook page, and there were some people who said they really liked Mrs. Wilcox, and I was thinking about how I feel about Mrs. Wilcox um, during this section, and I'm not entirely sure. So I would love to hear yeah. about what what your um, where your feelings are. I don't know if I want to say that you actually dislike her, but you seem to have some hesitation about her, and you at least you weren't tracking with her i don't know if that's the way to prove
1: yeah, it. yeah i didn't know i didn't say that i didn't like her i said that she did not ring true to me
0: okay so what do you mean by that because well, that, that idea well let me just that idea of ringing true is a really interesting one in this in this book and and i i think that we're going to talk about that a lot so i would love to hear what you have to say about that and i won't interrupt you this time
1: no that's fine or
0: will i <laughs> go ahead go ahead
1: i don't mind being interrupted um <laughs> But uh, let's see. How should I say this? I I see what he's going for.
0: Forrester, Uh, you mean?
1: Yes. Let's see what Forrester's going for in her character. And I know that she is supposed to represent mysticism. Um, And...
0: Well, go on about that. How is she supposed to represent mysticism?
1: Okay, so she has a special connection with nature. Um, She seems to have senses about people that are sort of mysterious. You know, she... She knows things but doesn't explain, right? Like, how did you know this was going on with Paul? How did you know? Like, she just always has a sense of what is unfolding. She mm-hmm. um, has a very hard time putting into words the things that she sees. That's part of the relationship she has with Margaret. You know, it's, it's always mm-hmm. like, oh, you have the words. You have the words for what it is that I see. Um, she has. Uh, she's out of time, right? Um, you know what I mean by that is like she does. She's not of the time. There's this timelessness of about her. Uh, she has a special connection with the tree and nature like i said mm-hmm. um and and so all of that is supposed to make her a, a mystical character mm-hmm.
0: okay yep
1: um and all but... of those things are true uh, but as someone has as someone who has more than a passing interest in mysticism and more than a passing knowledge of it he's just off he's off I and mean, those things are all true of mystics but she d- she doesn't sound like a mystic to me with the when uh, I feel like he is trying to create a type and she is a type, but she does not ring true to me as a human being. There there were just so many things that she said and I was like, nope, nope, nope. That's not how mystic talks. It's not how mystic thinks. It's not how mystic sees the world. Um, I mean, I just- Well, but aren't
0: there a wide, I mean, and I'm not meaning to be contentious, but aren't there, aren't there, I mean, isn't every mystic its own person? So (laughs) wouldn't they have their own unique voices and their own way of speaking and they wouldn't always ring true to kind of- like they're not always even be true to themselves. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? And I don't, no, I don't I mean suppose. to say that you're wrong, by the way. I
1: suppose. I don't know that I even have the words for it. Okay. That was just, and that's why, I mean, I just thought that was just a little off the record text. And I, I didn't have <laughs> all like, all I, I mean, all I mean is like, I didn't have an articulated, formulated opinion about Mrs. Wilcox, that that was just my first impression that as I read her, she didn't ring true. And that happens to me in books all the time. Uh,
0: yeah, I suspect that's true of most of us. Like, I and I, I don't
1: necessarily. I mean, eventually, I might have the words. I don't have them right yeah. now. But there was yeah. something about her that seemed off in, in the way that Forster is is um, portraying her.
0: Well, lucky for you, this is not a book that has a lot of Mrs. Wilcox in it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, um, Angel- and because I
1: Angelina, found this so terribly boring.
2: Angelina, why why is she a mystic and not just? Intuitive.
1: Oh, I mean, all the all the scholarly work calls her the mystical character. You know, they they break down all the characters.
0: Mm, okay, oh. A scholarly work about the Forster about the book itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so <clears throat> um, Forster seems clearly, as you put it, to be working or employing types like even the two sisters in their own way are kind of types. Um, Do you, do you find either of you that the relationship between Margaret, I guess they start calling her Meg, right. And um, Mrs. Wilcox, do you find that that also rings true? Like, is that, is the kind of back and forth tension connection thing going on there? Is that, Is that ringing false to you as well? And is that why the scenes are boring? You think, or is, or is what they're talking about not interesting?
1: No, I I think that I don't feel the draw between those two women. All right, the whole thing hinges on their drawn to each other, and there's this awkwardness that they can't overcome. But I don't feel the pull. Do do you think? Which maybe that's just my problem because I don't, I don't, I can't see why Margaret would want would be working so hard to be close to this woman. I don't feel the draw to her.
0: What about you, Tim? Do you sense, do you, can you, can you understand the draw? The appeal? Ah, I'm, I'm really sympathetic with what Angelina says, because it's interesting
2: that Forrester, when he does draw, when he does describe the attraction, um, that Margaret has for Mrs. Wilcox, he doesn't do it through dialogue. He kind of stops the dialogue and he says, this is what Margaret is feeling. So I found it kind of, so it's a little bit like the action stops and Forster has to tell us what's going on. Whereas in the previous scenes, to some degree at the party and when the girls are talking about, um, uh, Leonard Bast, we get it through dialogue. So, Yeah, I'm sympathetic with what Angelina said for that reason, that he has to pause and kind of editorialize about what the attraction is, and he can't show it to us.
0: Well, why... So why does... Why does Margaret pursue this relationship? I mean, I guess I wouldn't say she pursues it, but she certainly... She sends the letter, which she kind of realizes was probably the wrong thing to do. Um, And then... It seems like she isn't even that sure that she wants to, you know, for the for their relationship to grow. Like she doesn't seem like she cares that much about it, especially early on. Um, she's, you know, she like she says, I'm like, She doesn't want to go out to their house and things like that. There's yeah. a reluctance about it. So why do you think that she allows herself to get sucked into that, so to speak, Angelina? Do you have any thoughts on that, or Tim? Either way,
2: why does she get sucked into the like? Mrs. Wilcox is sucked into what, David?
0: The relationship with Mrs. Wilcox.
2: Oh. I took it at the beginning. I don't know what you think, Angelina, but I took it at the beginning as she's kind of trying to do damage control. You know, this this terrible thing happened between Helen and the Wilcox family, and now Margaret is going to pay... A, pay um, she's going to call on Mrs. Wilcox to do damage control... And the party is another effort toward damage control. But then it seems like at the end of 10 or during 10, it actually, there's some sort of connection. There's something that Mrs. Wilcox has that Margaret doesn't have that she seems to want, that she wants from Mrs. Wilcox.
0: Something Margaret wants from Mrs. Wilcox. Like Yeah. What? What do you think that is
2: I'm not sure. I just think that it's centered around howard's end. Hmm. It has something to do with howard's end it maybe it's it's more than family it's more than um a connection to a place. I assume Angelina is completely right. It's like there's something that's gonna like we're going to discover is that there's some sort of mystical understanding that Mrs. Wilcox has, because I'm so early in the book, because I've read no critical um, interpretations of what's going on. It just, it strikes me now, presently in the book, as some sort of kind of intuitive sense of, oh gosh.
0: Well, Angelina, do you you kind of read these chapters then as... Or at least so you know, some of this part of the narrative as sort of just Forster moving us from one place to the next in the novel.
1: I'm not really sure what the purpose of the scenes are. I mean, I think that we are I think we're to believe that Margaret is drawn to Mrs. Wilcox in a way that she doesn't understand. That Margaret
0: um, doesn't understand.
1: Yes, a way that Margaret yeah. doesn't understand. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think you're probably right about that.
1: Because she very she's fumbling over herself, you know, and um I think that damage control is the is the front, right? Uh, but it's not, it's not the real reason, because, of course, when she's in Mrs. Wilcox's presence, she's like, oh, well, of course, of course. I knew Paul was out of the country. And, of course, Helen is out of the country. So, of course, it's completely bizarre that I told you we should make sure they never meet since they're not even in the same country. Like, you know, like, all of that just fell apart when she was in Mrs. Wilcox's presence, which, of course, that's another, like, sign of her mysticism that all of the artifice just fades away and she can see to the heart of the matter, you know, that there's that realness there between the two of them. Um, Mm. I don't know. I I was wrestling with what is the point of this interaction. Then you said, you don't think Mrs. Wilcox even comes back in the story. So her, her function then must be for something about Margaret's character. And so maybe that's what we'll see. Maybe something has been born here. Um, because we're getting a lot of Margaret's interior life section. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you know she struggles with the fact that Missus Wilcox calls her innocent, um, uh, Mm -hmm. and sort of naive. And she's like, "I'm 29. I've been running my own home for 10 years. I've raised these two people. How dare she call me innocent?" But but also I am. I am innocent. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) so so, uh, maybe that's the point. Maybe it's one of those characters that just you know come up against you, and now you have. Which would that would be very true of a mystical character as well. That something about Margaret herself would now be revealed to Margaret now that she has been in the presence of Mrs. Wilcox. So maybe there's seeds here that are going to go somewhere else. Maybe down, you know, maybe 10 chapters down the road, I'm going to say, oh, that's what those scenes were for. That's, Hmm. I really don't think the conversation and all of that, which felt so plodding and slow to me, um, is the point. uh, The point was Margaret is fumbling over herself and, and feels unsure, is drawn to Mrs. Wilcox, you know, that whole, no, of course, I don't want to go to Howard's Inn and then taking off after her and, you know, Obviously, there's something else is going on.
0: yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting that is kind of it's under the surface, even as it's been i mean it's this has been stated multiple times, but it's kind of boiling under the surface is this is this sort of it's the idea that Margaret has been Margaret and Helen have sort of been alone for so long, that Margaret has had to raise her siblings that there's this sense of um like that'll make you grow up really fast but it also takes things from you right about about
1: well especially if the oldest huh
0: right um and so that like that that about her i think is kind of boiling under the surface and is sort of waiting to become um a part of the narrative like a like a bigger part of the narrative and mostly it's just kind of been told us told to us as a as a side by the narrator um uh, does that make sense that yeah so there's this sense of um her, she never she grew up quicker she was forced to grow up more quickly in a way that other people didn't have to and so she in some ways is more sure of herself because mm-hmm. uh, and of her own capacity and capabilities and intelligence and things like that um because she sort of cultivated um, an independence in herself and in her home you can even see it in the kind of conversations they're having which is based and where wilcox is really the only well i don't want to say she's the only adult because margaret's obviously 29 but she's the only person with like real experience in life um everyone else thinks they know what they're talking about but their scope (laughs) knowledge is very limited but but they've she's margaret has cultivated that sort of independence in their home but at the same time um for all that independence you know there's a portion of her that is lacking
1: well what what do
0: you go ahead, ahead angelina
1: I think what you're seeing is that, um, I mean, the opening scene that we have of Margaret, right, is that she did not go on the trip because she's taking care of the little brother. So this is somebody who has put her own needs and desires on the back burner and is the caregiver for the whole family. So Mm -hmm. like you're saying, in one way, that's going to grow her up. But in another way, it's going to mean that she is not in touch with herself and her needs. So possibly this interaction with Mrs. Wilcox is setting her on the course of that. Like, I don't remember this novel enough to know, is this a coming of age story about, margaret or not i think it's both girls if i if i remember it's been such a long time i don't really remember what happens but um i wouldn't be surprised if that's the direction it takes she's she's lacking a certain self-knowledge that's why the comment from mrs wilcox about her being innocent strikes her as both being true and false
0: i love the idea of a character or a person in general being capable and independent but yet not having self-awareness like true self-awareness. I don't mean like lacking self-awareness like Michael Scott in the office. Like, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> um but but I just think that's a very, that's an interesting idea that someone can be capable and independent um and yet not know themselves and I think that that makes for an interesting character with lots of possibility I think that's a great point Angelina
1: yeah and I it also might be connected to leisure because he's making so many comments about the leisure class and mm-hmm. yeah. the opportunities they have for self-development and growth that others don't and so mm. Part of what would have been taken from Margaret is leisure, because she becomes the caregiver. She's the mother now, so she steps into this role of caring for. It's it's, it's all very outward focused, right? I'm taking care of everyone else. Mm. I'm getting Helen out of her scrapes. Tibby is a giant baby who is feeling ill all the time, and, yeah. and uh, aware of her own needs.
0: Do you think she sees in Mrs. Wilcox like a inst- mother? Well, either a mother or the opposite, like someone, another person to care for like instinctively is it possible it could be that she sees this person who's lonely well or alone anyway and when she finds out that she's alone and she's been sick and she like stays in bed needs these these days in bed don't we all but you know she sees that and it triggers or becomes something where she it's almost like a cause for her and margaret's all about causes like ideologies and things like that is that am i reading too much into that you think
1: i read it the opposite i think you can make a case for what you're saying though but i read it the opposite way that what is drawing her to Mrs. Wilcox is that Mrs. Wilcox is mm. is a mother figure. Mm.
0: And and her um Margaret and Helen's mother died when they were very young and then the father died later, right? Right. Okay, yeah.
1: I think they were still pretty young when the father died though.
0: Right. Right. Well, I it was the father was the father that he died or the mother died in was it in childbirth is that? am I
1: I can't even remember.
0: <laughs> I feel like I read that but, you know. So let's talk so I want to kind of shift gears here a little bit, unless Tim, you have anything to add to this. Part. No, no, no. Let's talk about chapter six. One thing you did say, Angelina, and this was also off the record technically, but you said that you really liked those first two chapters of first I two said paragraphs. The first chap- two
1: paragraphs of chapter six are extraordinary. Yes. And I stand by that. I got stars so, all over the place on this page.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of beautiful writing here. Um, and then it leads us into this whole scene with, with um, Leonard. And it's, it's such a weird chapter in some ways because one through five, Leonard's just in it barely at all. It's all about Margaret and um, Helen and the Wilcoxes, I guess. Chapter seven through 10, the Mar- it's about the Wilcoxes and Margaret and Helen, right? But then in, in between that, we have this kind of random chapter that is about Leonard, but it's also goes on and on about all these kind of philosophical ideas. Do, do you think... Angelina or Tim that part of the problem with this section that you had was that this chapter kind of altered the momentum of the first five chapters of the book and took us somewhere else. And then tried to bring us back to where it was before. Yes. I, you, yeah, I would, I, would,
1: I would agree with that. I, f- yeah. I, f- I think I, I think I said that to you earlier in the text that I just felt like it slowed down so much, like it was going at this great pace and then it just slowed down. Hmm. And, so, and i'm okay with that if it's intentional sometimes it's intentional you know
0: yeah yeah kind of
2: it's intentional engineering, like let's pump the brakes a little bit because we yeah. don't want the pace to carry us away
1: well you know like a piece of music it speeds up yeah, yeah, it slows yeah. down a crescendo yeah. some, sometimes an author is especially in poetry they'll they'll add a bunch of syllables and make you to make you slow down i didn't get the sits that this was i'm gonna intentionally slow you down so you can really reflect on this section you know I, i I wasn't sure why it got so slow i just
0: there is definitely an abruptness to it even like i'm so
1: glad i wasn't the only one who felt that i thought maybe because i read it when i was sick
0: no 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 i mean like even the first paragraph or the first sentence of chapter six so you're getting this forward (laughs) momentum of the story and this little moment of conflict right with leonard at the end of chapter five with and the umbrella scene is actually it's sad and funny at the same time where she like makes fun of his umbrella, saying, "Oh, it couldn't possibly be yours." I'm sorry, and then it turns out it's his, and he grabs it and runs off. Uh-huh. It's sort of like it's sort of funny, honestly, and sad at the same time. Um, but then chapter six begins with this very abrupt sentence: "We are not concerned with the very." Yeah, plot.
2: what a sentence! What a stark
0: sentence!
2: It felt like a bullet.
1: Oh, it was so good though.
0: They are unthinkable and only to be approached by the statistician or the poet. This story deals with gentlefolk, or with those who are obliged to pretend that they are gentlefolk. So we're getting this instance that we keep getting, I mentioned this last episode, we keep getting these moments where the narrator kind of like pulls us out of the story, starts giving us his opinions or her opinions, or however, you know, we'll see. Um,
1: That's true, because he basically repeats this later out of the mouth of Margaret, which it flows a lot better, right? When she's just talking to the aunt about how we don't realize that we stand on money and so even Mm -hmm. when we're not thinking about it we cannot think about it because we have it that was all great that was great dialogue i loved that
0: but this approach this whole Mm. like way of telling the story is is odd where the narrator just pulls us out and talks to us and then has the characters say the same things like i know he's preparing us um but there's a formalism to it that is Odd, I think.
1: It makes me wonder, though, if this is just one of the issues of the transition of the narrator over the, over the whole development of the novel. You know, could, yeah, could just be like yeah. how you had all those super awkward 17th century novels that were just epistolary novels because they didn't know how to handle the narrator didn't know how to handle point of view. So it was all just letters. I'm so awkward and so contrived, right? Right. Everybody had a letter about everything and a diary entry about everything. Um, And now here's, here's his diary entry. So we can know what he's thinking. Right. Um, (laughs) And and so, and then they move away from that, but, but again, they still are not, they still haven't mastered the omniscient narrator. So you have the, you have the author speaking directly to you a lot. And uh, so I'm just wondering if some of this is transition, just not does that make sense? Like just still yeah. trying to figure out how do you, how do you tell a story? How do you, it's just so, it's so, okay. So um, you like in are,
2: literary history, you mean, Angelina, yes, in, like yes. literary history, this is a transition,
1: right? Because a Victorian yeah. novel, as we said last time is a very, very preachy, you know, dear reader. So he's not doing that dear reader. We are not concerned with the very poor. Like that would be a sentence that Georgelia would say. <laughs> <clears throat> she would just put dear reader at the front, but it, it you know, choosing your point of view is very, very difficult. And um, David and I were talking about Ernest Gaines a few weeks back because he was in the program at Stanford with Wendell Berry. And Ernest Gaines was the writer in residence at the graduate school I was at. And I ran into him many times at the post office and would chat with him about his books and everything. And uh, one of the things he he, he said was that um, for his book, A Gathering of Old Men, which has a just a fascinating narrative structure every chapter is told from the point of view of a different character and it's not it's not it's not letters or anything it's all um it's all this first person narrator but each chapter is a different character so what what the story was he wrote the entire novel from one person, one character's point of view, read it and was like, nope, it doesn't work because he can't know this and he can't know that. And I got to get inside this character's head. So then he wrote the whole novel again from another character's point of view, ran into the same problems, wrote the entire novel over and over from every character's point of view, finally figured out the only way to get it right was to let them all tell the story. Hmm. Which is just fascinating to me to think about the question of how do you tell the story who who knows what because all of that is going to limit your you know it's going to limit the plot do we know what's going on inside of everybody's head or do we not yeah and sometimes sometimes you don't want to know sometimes the story requires that you don't know that's part of the tension right yeah everybody's kind of talking past each other and you don't know what's happening
0: one i think that this is one of the underrated things about jane austen is that for her time she was so she was able to craft uh, narrative voice and perspective that in in such a consistent way um that that was uncommon for that era and i, and I think was kind totally. of revolutionary
1: totally because she's uh, way way before the victorians who are considered the masters of the novel yeah but she you're absolutely right there's, she a, masters-
0: there's a consistency in her in her and, perspective and, but she
1: masters it without that awkward reader reader mr dorsey was admiring elizabeth's fine eyes that's how george eliot would have totally written that scene (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: yeah exactly
2: (laughs) what a difficult difficult technique to master Mm -hmm. even just from a writer's point of view what an extraordinarily difficult task where to place your narrator how close to the characters how far from the characters Below the characters, above the characters, does the narrator have a personality? Is the narrator uh, attempting to be a mere journalist who reports what the narrator sees? <laughs> yeah, a terribly difficult task, and it's all the more impressive. Now, I like, even though we might find this the beginning of six clumsy, I like the narrator's voice. The more that I hear from the narrator, I, I, I appreciate. The narrator. There's a little bit of snark. There's a little bit of wit and wisdom that I'm it's really I appreciate it.
1: Oh, I appreciate it too. I, I like him. I like the first two chapters. I mean two paragraphs.
0: One Plus. of the things that's interesting is how, in a way, it feels like it's purposefully disorienting. Because on the one hand, the the narrator knows everything, you know, it's omniscient this is an omniscient narrator, but then he keeps kind of switching to describing scenes or conversations in such a way that almost feel like you're supposed to have a limited narrator and I think the fact that it's jumping back and forth I'm sure it's on purpose but it's a little bit disorienting Mm. and it's one of the things that I think takes some time to settle into and that's why when it shifts to someone like a scene about Leonard shifts so dramatically I think that's part of the disorientation that happens there
1: I wonder if it's one of the things that when we get to the end, we'll be able to say, "Oh no, I was totally wrong. He was completely in control of that narrative, and he was slowing us down on purpose, you know, or he was making us awkward on purpose." I, I'm not far enough in to be able to say. I think.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's where
2: kind of that's where
0: I am. <clears throat> so, well, what? Let's go back to this beginning. This this disorienting line. We are not concerned with the very poor. They are <laughs> unthinkable and, not, and only to be approached by the statistician or the poet. This is a strongly put line. <laughs> yes it is, it is. I'll put it that way. Uh thoughts I'll open the floor. What what's I mean what does he mean? What's the purpose of this? How are we supposed to feel about it as the reader? Are we supposed to like Leonard? Are we supposed to be condescending towards him? What all these things are the questions that are going through my mind as I as I've been thinking about this. Um I think this is one of those lines where I could just sit there and fill a whole le- yellow a page of yellow legal pad. <laughs> with questions about what I'm supposed to feel or think about what's going on here.
2: David, tell us what what was your initial reaction, just your gut response?
0: Um huh. <laughs> that was my initial response. Yeah. Um because the book sets its it the book is setting itself up to the first five chapters it feels like it's setting itself up very purposefully to be this sort of story about equality, um, about how the divide between the upper class and the lower class is, yeah. is bad and how, you know, poor Leonard and, you know, he should be brought, like, it seems like Margaret and Helen are trying to bring him into their world, but then they're kind of condescending and you kind of feel like you're judging them at the end of chapter five. And then chapter six comes along and it says, nah, I don't think that way. You know, it tells you, he's being just as condescending as margaret and helen or at least helen was um at the end of chapter five but then we get into this this chapter about leonard where then it feels like you're supposed to be getting to know him and you're supposed to feel something for him and it's sort of this Dostoevsky in chapter yeah um and so it feels like it's kind of pulling you back and forth in terms of what the novel is trying to do and um when it says we are not very concerned with the we're not concerned with the very poor, you know. Um, it it's one of those lines. It's like, wait, what do you mean, we? <laughs> yeah, that was my question. Also, I was like, who's wait, who is the we here? Who's the we?
1: Oh, he means England, right? I mean, that's how I read it. It's a totally snarky comment on England.
0: But I, it also, so that was my first impression. Then I got thinking about it, and I started thinking about this idea of voice and perspective. And it's he's just, it could be saying that, but he also be saying that this particular novel is just not concerned about the very poor. It's concerned that's what about, i i took it as the not narrator the or the very rich it's concerned with the people who are kind of in between battling it out
2: yeah. yeah i might be wrong that's i took it after i i i read we okay wait who's the we and i read it a couple more times and i think i said i think this is the royal narrator we
0: well because he does say this story deals with gentle folk
1: i read it both ways though right like it's the
0: so it could be both I, for sure. Yeah. Kind
1: of like, you know, I'm not writing a book about the very poor because you would not read that book. You don't want to have that conversation. So instead I'm going to show you the story of somebody who's just on the edge of gentility, which is a much more powerful story anyway, because we tend to romantic and you know what he's saying about the poet, they, they romanticize the poor, the very poor. And I, and I also couldn't help, but think about the Victorian tradition. Right. So you've got the several reform acts that happen and debtors prisons being closed down. And, um, the very poor is a big concern of the Victorian novelists mm. and Charles Dickens and all that. I mean, yep, they're just, yep. they're writing about that all the time. So he's, he's in that tradition saying, you know, this is not going to be a Dickens novel. This is not going to be about Oliver Twist and orphans living in the orphanage and the poor house and debtors prison. This is, this is about somebody just on the edge who can't quite make it and the torment that is his, which is a different kind of torment. Man, yeah, I really like who, that. Actually,
0: we are obliged to pretend? I like what you're saying, though. That the poet, the the poet romanticizes the poor, and the statistician,
1: um, what dehumanizes? Dehumanizes.
0: Yeah. So yeah, they're or both,
1: de- but they're both dehumanizing, right? To romanticizes to dehumanize says the romantic, but still, yes, it's true. True, it's because I see everything as a type, so I can totally say that that's true
2: i thought when I read that first paragraph, well especially the first sentence, I thought of Dostoevsky's first novel was called "Poor Folk," and it was very much a the type of novel that Angelina is describing. you know there's this kind of a description of what a kind of like a romanticized poor family's life is like. And what's interesting is once Dostoevsky went to prison, he was arrested, and there was kind of a charade of uh, that they were going to put him to death. And instead of putting him to death, they sent him to prison. And I can't remember how many years exactly he was in prison, but his romanticized view of the very poor was kind of ripped away from him when he was in prison. And so he forsook that mode of writing when he came back out and all of his great novels were written after that time in prison. And they don't typically do the traditional, oh gosh, whatever we're going to call it, the, the novelistic approach of a slight romanticism of the poor showing concern using the novel as a means to you know, reform society and draw attention to social ills. And that's the end of my story. So I'd like to talk maybe about something else now.
0: <laughs> no, um, I was trying to think. The Dostoevsky comparison is interesting, especially for this chapter. Because the whole time I was reading that chapter, that's all, all I could think about was Dostoevsky. It felt like Dostoevsky. Um, but the rest of the and book what, doesn't David,
2: what like about it felt like Dostoevsky?
0: I don't like the mood, like the tone, like this. the yeah. the, the, the female character. What uh, What's her name? Um, oh, yeah. What is her name? uh shoot he like the fact that he's reading ruskin and like the way he thinks about himself and yeah dostoevsky characters let's read um ruskin but but just pushkin they read pushkin not ruskin (laughs) the 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 description of the um of the flat being dark as well as stuffy um all that kind of stuff the way that the way that he interacts with her and it's not like it feels so fake. This I don't know. Yeah. All that stuff felt very Dostoevskian. Um, Jackie is her name. Jackie Jackie's, is yeah, yeah.
2: Leonard's love interest.
0: Yeah. Uh, Angelina, wh- what is the what do you read as the purpose of this chapter? Is it is as far as the fact that he's trying to get us to know uh, Leonard so much and that he kind of drops us into jackie's world as well how does what does it feel like the purpose of it is
1: um i think he's giving us the inner life of somebody who's struggling to to get something just out of reach um it's a this is a different sort of character you know like coming out of the victorian tradition you have a, a lot of aristocrats um I mean, I guess there are some stories about people feeling shut out, like Jane Eyre. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot. Okay, there's a lot of stories about women. I'm, I'm thinking through this as I say it. There's a lot of stories about women being shut out and having very few options, and so they have to become governesses, right? There's just very few options for a woman who wants to better herself in the world. This is interesting because it's showing us a man who has very few options, and huh. you know, I, I love that he's spending his evening. Um, reading these books and wrestling through them and trying to figure out how to apply Ruskin to his day-to-day life. And, but, and, but then also his thought process, right? Like if I, if I buy this book, I I have to walk home. If I, if I, um, you know, if I go to see this opera, then I can't pay for the gas in in the heater. Like to to see that kind of thought process is fascinating also, because of course it goes in direct contrast to what Margaret's going to say about we, we float along in life because we're floating on money and we don't even realize it. Like when you have money, you don't realize that you don't think about money. Um, Mm. It's only when you don't have money that you think about money all the time. Um, But, but it's just absolutely fascinating to think about someone being willing to sacrifice physical needs, right? Like a, like a, like a taxi cab ride home or Mm -hmm. putting on the gas or, Eating, right? He goes without eating, um, so that he could have art and literature and music. I mean, that is, that's amazing. But also to see him be so frustrated with it and that it's, it's out of reach. It, I, I think Leonard is a is a fascinating character, and um, a few people on the Facebook page made the connection between what's happening here in Charlotte Mason and how Charlotte Mason is arguing that the arts are ennobling for everyone, that everyone should have access to the arts, which I thought was a, just a great connection and really, really interesting to kind of pull all these things together. I mean, England during this time period, going back about 100 years with the first Reform Act, uh, I mean, that's their thing. They are reforming. They are social reformers. These are These are the kinds of questions they're they're raising you know are and so charlotte mason was definitely in that tradition art for everyone not just Mm -hmm. for the for the aristocrats it's
0: it says he felt that he was being done good to and that if he kept on with ruskin and the queen's hall concerts and some pictures by watts he would one day push his head out of the gray waters and see the universe
1: what's the line about how democracy hurts him where was that that was fantastic yeah, mark- there was a line somewhere i have so many passages you think it's in chapter six well i don't see it i don't see where i put that but do you know what i'm talking about there was the there was the line about how democracy had erased certain lines and made it harder on him uh, where was that
0: line? well there's the there's the stuff about miss Wil- wilcox being glad she doesn't have to vote is it is because they kind of talk about that there in chapter nine or whatever? I'm there.
1: sure that I marked it. Hold on. And you
2: think it's in
1: Angelina? And, I, I,
2: you think it's in his voice, maybe or while it's not, we're with him?
1: Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a conversation they have. I can't find it.
0: Well, he does. You know, one of the big one of the big themes so far in the book is the idea of aspiration. So Leonard's got this aspiration to make something more of his life and um everybody i mean it's i mean it's what people do but everybody's got some kind of aspiration that they're working towards right and i think one of the questions is what exactly is it that margaret and helen are aspiring to are they aspiring to maintain the life they live the lives they live or is there something bigger that they're aspiring towards and it seems that to me is seems like one of the things that's underlying margaret's character when she talks about money because she talks about she talks about how oh we have money we can we're never going to have any issues right but and so the idea implicit or implicit in that is the idea that oh we don't have to like push towards anything we don't have to work towards anything but it doesn't seem true like that I that she's saying that doesn't mean that she believes that or that that's not some some longing in her to push towards something higher than just being comfortable and having money does that make sense and it feels to me oh yeah 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 under the surface is this desire. Um, or this aspiration for something more, which is why she and her sisters you know she, I guess they got that from their their father they, they're pushing in all their conversations you know they're so consumed with these ideologies, and it's con- it's because that they, they understand that there's something there's more than just the comfortable life that they're already living um, and, the- and David, I took um that
2: desire as kind of finding itself in Mrs. Wilcox. She clearly has something bigger than she's living that she's living for. Hmm. Her family, there's something about Howard's End for her that it is more than just their home. It's it's the center of her being. Hmm. And and I think that's it's hard centered, for Margaret
0: that idea of being centered around on Howard's end like her being is centered is an interesting one.
2: And I, the close of chapter 10 is a lot of the reason why I think that. The, it's almost worth reading that closing paragraph. Um, so this is after Mrs. Wilcox and her husband and daughter walk off. Uh, the voices of the happy family rose high. Margaret was left alone. No one wanted her. Mrs. Wilcox walked out of King's Cross between her husband and daughter, listening to both of them.
0: angelina mm-hmm. not to not to move away from what tim said but i found your line
1: oh, where oh is good.
0: It? it's in what the first s- second paragraph of six had he lived some centuries ago in the brightly colored civilizations of the past he would have had a definite status his rank and his income would have corresponded but in his day the angel of democracy had arisen in shadowing the classes with leathern wings and proclaiming all men are equal all men that is to say who possess umbrellas and so he was obliged to assert gentility, lest he slipped into the abyss where nothing counts and the statements of democracy are inaudible.
1: Yes. yes.
0: As he walked away from Wickham Place, his first care was to prove that he was as good as the Miss, Miss Schlegels.
1: Mm. Well, yes, of course, right? To to be standing next to the real thing is going to make you feel like a shabby fraud, mm. which is, I mean, that's why he leaves with the umbrella, right?
0: And then, as he's walking away, he says, "They're probably not real ladies anyway." Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> Otherwise, they would have never invited me to tea. <laughs> yeah.
0: And like, then there's a formalism, a, a a formality in the way he speaks to people as he's walking down the road. But then he gets, you know, you know, this sort of the things they're talking about, and Cunningham's talking to him about the future of England with the population and the. You know, the the pleasantries he offers to Daltrey and Mr. Bast and all these people that he comes across. But then he gets into his apartment and that facade kind of melts away. And there he is with this strange woman that he doesn't really know that he loves or whatever. And mm-hmm. so he's caught between Oh, there's this great line. Um, uh, where is it? But um Summer it was no good, this continual aspiration. Some are born cultured. The rest had better go in for whatever comes easy. To see life steadily and to see it whole was not for the likes of him. Um, I can't find the exact line I'm thinking of, but he's... its There's this dichotomy between what he aspires to and the way he lives. So like, he can sit in this room and make this kind of measly dinner while also quoting Ruskin. So that dichotomy is like, he's so aware of it. Like there's a self-awareness to him. Yeah, and That's
1: why there's all this horrible embarrassment when she comes in, right? Like this, this, she, she's the spotlight on the lie. And of course we don't know what the backstory is, how they got involved in this, how he ended up, you know, in this situation where he's made this promise because that all of that seems to run very counter to who he's trying to be, right? He's trying to raise himself up in the world this is not the woman
0: she's tying him to down. Help him
1: do that exactly exactly so um i hope we hear more about how he's gotten himself into this situation but he's also got this sense of honor right he's not going to j- jilt her because yeah. this is what he's struggling with right and so me i don't know i don't know there's this sense to speculate that... what their backstory is but
0: there's this sense that he knows his i don't know i don't like he knows his place but won't accept it if that makes sense like he knows what's expected of him and wants to do the right thing about for his place and his lot in life but also you know he talks about wanting to come to culture suddenly like a revivalist comes to jesus yeah yeah
1: that was so good
0: um He did believe in effort and in a steady preparation for the change that he desired, but of a heritage that may expand gradually, he had no conception. He hoped to come to culture suddenly, much as the revivalist hopes to come to Jesus. Those Miss Schlegels had come to it. They had done the trick. Their hands were upon the ropes once and for all. And meanwhile, his flat was dark as well as stuffy.
1: I can't help, again, going back to this idea of leisure, right? Like People who have leisure are able to slowly and steadily absorb culture and be yeah cultured right and here he is literally doing it in his spare seconds
0: Mm.
1: and trying to you know put a whole lifetime of leisure
0: he's trying to be the self-made man. yeah yeah Yeah, he is yeah it's trying to be be an american
1: sad it is it's so admirable and so sad
2: Mm. it makes me think to return to my little analogy of the red States and blue States that if Mrs. Wilcox is from a red state, if the Schlegel sisters are from a blue state, it seems like he's caught in the middle because he doesn't have his own family. He doesn't have his own. Um, he's kind of tiptoeing toward a family with Jackie, but he doesn't want that. But he also doesn't have the sort of, leisure time that would be required to become to enter the blue state so he's kind of this purple character and I'm curious about what's going to happen to him is he going to get is he going to be I, I think of these two big glaciers moving and he's kind of caught in the middle the two big glaciers being the Schlegel sisters the Wilcox family he is neither he's kind of aspiring to be one is he going to get rubbed out in the middle and just end up being kind of the detritus of the story is he somehow going to move into some sort of life like the schlegel sisters he's a wild card for me right now i don't know what's going to happen with him
1: one of the things i'm thinking about is Leonard is not exactly with the girl next door that he's expected to settle down with into his station in life, right? That's not what we have here. This is definitely a scandal, and he knows it. This is why he's lied to the neighbors and said that they're married. She is clearly, as Forrester puts it, past her prime. So what was the draw here? Like my I, Again, I don't remember what happens, and I don't know their backstory, but I wonder if there was something very shiny about her that made him feel like she was an entryway into another world
2: oh right right
1: it doesn't turn out to be like he thought because she's not a wife she's not cooking dinner i mean she's very (laughs) there's a lot of histrionics here she comes in in her bow and so i'm so tired i'm gonna go lie down and you do love me right and just the whole it's just very it's very over the top she's she's this is not the representation of that, that what he's being tempted toward is, is the very you know, ordinary work-a-day, middle-class life that he's expected to have. And then he's fighting through that for some cultured life. That's not what's being set up here. He's living in an illusion in this apartment with this woman.
2: And now the, now the mask is Schlegels, beginning to fall, fall yeah. off.
1: Well, yeah. She obviously is very anxious that he's not going to do right by her
2: surely she sees this you know that he went surely she has seen before this scene his sort of gravitational pull toward a life more like the schlegel sisters as a threat to her
1: absolutely that's why he says twice i didn't go anywhere after
2: oh yeah yeah yeah. that's right that's right i promise dear it's all
1: okay
0: So do you see the Wilcoxes as supposed to be between the Schlegels and Leonard as far as their sort of status, or are they a higher class? Because it seems like in some ways, um, well, obviously, um, it's not really, it seems like the Schlegel whole clan, that whole expanded clan there, including the Germans, they all kind of look down on the Wilcoxes for being in the country. So how are we supposed to look at the Wilcoxes? Like what is their status?
1: So the Schlegels are definitely the leisure class, but the Wilcoxes are not. They're much more of your up and coming middle class family. They have money, but they would have earned it. So they, you know, not 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 coming out of that aristocratic gentleman. We don't, um, we don't um you know, we don't earn our living. We're gentlemen. It's ungentlemanly yeah. to have the, a job. Bertie Wooster. Yeah. Yes, but now yeah, there's, yeah. there's a very interesting comment on that, however, right? Because it's the Schlegels who modernity is pushing out. They are the ones losing their family home for the flats to be built. And, of course, that is the tension in England at this time. And that's why P.G. Woodhouse writes this stuff he does, speaking of Bertie Worcester, right, about the passing away of the aristocracy. You know, what is their function anymore? They get, they get overcome overwhelmed as a class by the the rising middle class with money and power and well it's a whole shift of power away from land um toward capital and so you know the middle class rises that's a whole other history of the rise of the middle class starting with the plagues right that's a long story but uh once you move wealth and power away from money it changes the whole um you know, landscape of the British economy and as well as the aristocracy. So I thought that was a really interesting comment that they're the ones leaving their family home. Yeah. Yeah. Losing their family home rather. Now it's Mrs. Wilcox, however, who had the Howard's in. So, so, you know, Mr. Wilcox married into that, but they are the, they're the up and coming modern family.
0: The, uh, and you mean the Schlegels are losing their home, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, to to progress
1: to progress to, ugly to modern flat. flats yeah which that's a big deal in england that's not just a literary device that's a big deal i mean gosh there's songs written about it poems written about it movies about it but you know the it's, ugly flats the ugly architecture that takes over england
0: it's the conflict around the kilns right now where, mean, lewis, where lewis lived they're putting all these apartments and flats in around there and it's oh, kind of really pushing I didn't know up that. Against the kilns property. So a lot of people, there's been this thing like a petition going on, on the internet to keep them from, to kind of preserve the serenity of the place. I don't know all the details about it, but yeah.
1: Well, I'm putting my bid in right now for an apartment across the street from <laughs> Yeah, Right,
0: right, right. Four, there. Please.
1: <laughs> Penthouse view of the pub.
0: <laughs> well we should um wrap this up so i want to any final thoughts from either of you or any lines or anything like that that you just want to draw attention to as people are i'm feeling a little net. better
1: about this section i did 11 I quite ill, so yeah
2: i felt like you were coming around like it's maybe the shine is starting to
1: i didn't enjoy the Mrs. Back. wilcox stuff but maybe if i maybe now that i'm thinking about that it's more about margaret because i quite like margaret
0: well at the beginning of chapter 11 we're going to get another abrupt sentence that's going to take us in a new direction so we'll, we'll talk 11 through 16 um tim do you have any final thoughts uh chapter 10
2: mm-hmm. this is this is uh when mrs wilcox and margaret are heading toward shopping the air was white and when they alighted it tasted like cold pennies i thought that was a lovely sentence
0: Cold pennies. Cold pennies. Hmm. Well, you know, money does pad the edges of things. God help those who have none. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Is that your sentence, David?
0: Well, yes, but I I do like that sentence. But there was a line that I really liked. I think it's the beginning of chapter seven. Yeah. Um, so they're talking about Wickham Place. Um, uh, let's see, and he it's it just it says. Well, I don't, I can't, I'd have to look into the, whose point of view we're going from here, but it says the passenger lifts, the provision lifts, the arrangement for coals were all familiar matters to her and perhaps a relief from, and this is the part that I love, the politico-economical aesthetic atmosphere that, that. leaned at the Schlegels. I love that. The politico-economical aesthetic atmosphere.
1: <laughs> That's going to be the name of my next Cersei talk.
0: That and that. and <laughs> like, I'm so fascinated by the, the idea that, uh, certainly with their father's prodding or whatever, but these two women and this sickly boy have, these two young women have created this atmosphere in their home that is described as politico-economical aesthetic.
2: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: Lots of hyphens in that. I just think I find that fascinating. Yeah. Keep an eye on what that, if if that gets defined more for us. Okay, I I have a
1: final, final thought, because I forgot I wanted to say this earlier. Yeah, go Um, for it. When y'all were talking about how Mrs. Wilcox said she was happy not to have the right to vote, that, uh, I think she's being portrayed as very otherworldly. She's just not concerned about worldly things, right? So she doesn't, she's not able to participate in any of the political conversations or the cultural conversations of the day. And that's why she would be happy not to have to vote. That's just not her sphere. Mm. I didn't and think I, that it was a, a necessarily a comment on women's suffrage. Just more like, probably, she's like, "Why would anybody want to vote? So glad yeah. not to be bothered." Yeah, with yeah, that yeah. Conversation. yeah.
0: Yes, yes. I think that's true. I, I, when I mentioned that earlier, I didn't mean to imply.
1: No, I didn't think that you did, but I, I wanted to make sure we drew it out that that this is just part of her overall otherworldliness.
2: And I, for me, Angelina, I mean again, having never read the book, having read no critical commentary, I just, I'm not seeing her as a mystic. I'm just seeing her as new money from the country. coming, Having come into London, city of cities, being kind of bombarded by all of these socioeconomic, ideological, you know, assessments of the world. And she's just This is just not the world that she's been living in. Maybe I will come around and I'll see her as a mystic, but for right now, I'm not seeing it.
0: Well, it is at least... Well, I mean, Angelina's giving a name to a type. And it's so... um,
1: Yes, okay. So it might be overstating it to say that she's a mystic, and maybe perhaps it's just better to say she has a mystical connection with people and nature.
0: Like, so it might be that there's a matter of how we're defi- exactly how we're defining mystic or like some mystic, subtlety, right. some subtlety in how you understand those things. Um, but I agree with that. I think that she does have a, she seems to have a connection with the way, I mean, I think Tim's use of the word intuitive is fair, but I think you're taking it a step further, right? So Tim said she's intuitive. Well, it's, it's, very,
1: it's very similar. It's very yeah. similar. Yeah. Mystics are also called intuitives.
0: So we agree great
2: (laughs) (laughs) i just don't see maybe i just have a picture of what a mystic is for me i think pseudo dionysius i think kind of like the classic um i don't know the
0: classic there's gonna be a lot of of people absolutely
2: from the world we are going to okay. weigh in on
0: this. Yeah, you're going to be tell Googling me what mysticism, is. mysticism and trying to figure out which one they agree with. The
1: definition of a mystic is the person who sees the river flowing under the river.
0: The definition of a mystic is a person who defines mysticism as the river which is flowing under <laughs> the
1: river. And right. I was right. the same thing as soon as I said I said, as defined by a mystic. So <laughs> there you
0: go (laughs) well i think that that's a good place to stop here (laughs) uh tim and angelina tim i know you've got things to do so i want to let you get to that angelina i know you need to rest so i'm gonna let you get to that uh to everybody who has been listening thanks so much for your feedback and your conversation thank you um it's as always it's great to talk about these books with you guys the hour-long conversations we have or hour-ish long are only a part of that ongoing conversation um, so thank you for listening thank you for participating uh, thank you to everyone who has been contributing uh, on our Patreon page and who's been patronizing our uh, <laughs> our our show um, your support is is uh, is wonderful and we're thankful for it and is enabling us to keep doing these shows so um, I'll keep every show I hope if I if I, for, if I go a show without saying thank you for that I've done you a disservice and hmm. so just assume if I do that it's because I am a lacking show host um and just missed the boat on that one um i guess that's it angelina and tim both got to say final thoughts would you say it like to say goodbye Any, anything else you want to add here before I... goodbye close readers <laughs> <laughs> for angelina stanford and for tim mcintosh for all of us here at Cersei, thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time on close Reads.